The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is... Jason Miller. Jason is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. And Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, this is one one of our periodic shows where we take a look at the latest in government contracting. You get an opportunity to provide your spin on it, so to speak. No spin, just facts, sir. You know me. Yes, absolutely. Nothing but the facts. Nothing but the facts. (laughs) We do only facts at Federal News Network. You know that. Right. Okay. (laughs) I've got it. So <laughs> I'll make sure I keep that clear at all times. Are you thinking about which soapbox I'll get on? Is that the issue? Yes, I'm, okay. I'm waiting for that next. <laughs> Just so. bring it on. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, since this is uh, Labor Day was yesterday, um, we could start by just taking a look back at the procurement summer that was 2019. And when I when I mentioned this summer and what transpired, what comes to your mind, Jason? The first thing has to be our friends at the Defense Department and their Jedi cloud contract. The drama, the intrigue, the, the I'll call it excitement that's been going on over the yeah, last— Yeah, it was a long, hot summer, huh? <laughs> I think for Oracle, for Amazon, for Microsoft, and for DoD, absolutely. And everything that just happened around Jedi has just been fascinating to watch. It's been fascinating. As I said to colleagues before, it's something that like you could write a book about if people would talk to you. I think there's that much kind of— drama and intrigue that's happening. That's the words that keep coming to my mind. And the fact is we're not done. We still probably are, you know, solid six more months, if not eight more months until we get an answer. And even then we may not get an answer. And what I'm interested in is not so much the salaciousness of the the potential controversy, right? The who was was going where and what, what job offers they had and when and who knew what. But the fact is that this really speaks to the procurement process and really opens the door to two things in my view. The first thing it opens the door for is an agency can set their quote-unquote gate requirements, which is what DOD did, to really not allow certain vendors to bid. So let's just use a crazy example, right? Let's say Ford and, and GM are bidding to provide cars for the government, right? And the government says, hey, uh, you, you must have at least one horse and buggy in your collection, knowing that Ford has one in their showroom, right, <laughs> and that GM doesn't. And I know this is ridiculous. I, I fully admit that. But there, but but basically what the judge ruled from the Court of Federal Claims, and I'm no lawyer, you know that, Roger, you are, right. was, hey, if you want to set the requirements to whatever you need your requirements to be, that's fine. I can't, I cannot judge that decision. You You know what your requirements are. I don't. So if, again, the government says – to Ford and GM, we need one horse and buggy, and, and Ford is the only one with a horse and buggy that's still capable of being used, they could actually kick out GM to say, hey, you're not qualified. And, and that, to me, has a long tail that could impact how agencies set requirements to make them protest-proof. The other thing about this that stands out is the fact DOD has dug their heels in so tight, so deep into this procurement. Whether it's right or wrong, whether you agree with their strategy or not, and I've had some conversations recently with some friends in the community who've been following this for a long time, and they don't understand why 
Oracle continues the fight. Uh, on the other hand, I've talked to folks who say Oracle has every right to continue the fight. But the fact is that any other agency, any other procurement, I just have the feeling, and, and you've been doing this longer than I have, that the agency would have stepped back and said, listen, even if we think we have, we're 100% correct, the optics on this is awful. Everything about this, the fact that IG investigations, the potential FBI investigations, we're just going to step back and relook at this and, and pull the procurement and, and start over. And DOD, you know, to their credit or not, they have dug their heels and said, we think this is the path we're going down and we're going to head down that path. And I think that's the other really interesting piece. It's a fascinating procurement. It has been appealed by Oracle to the circuit court. Did that surprise you, by the way? You're going to pass on that? Yes, I'm going to pass on that. It didn't surprise me. I'll throw that out there. You know, the the only thing I will talk about in terms of that you mentioned, the first item is um, just government's minimum needs. And, you know, there's a whole body, you know, the the Competition Contract Act, you're supposed to – you know, you establish your minimum needs. You're not supposed to unduly restrict competition. And you can, and bid protest process provides that opportunity to take a look at that. It's an interesting dynamic in terms of how those needs are, can be and have been articulated. And that is something that's always interest can be at the subject of a bid protest. But have you ever seen, and let's step aside from Oracle for a second, okay, and, and Jedi, but have you ever seen a agency that has made a very specific minimum need that just doesn't make sense. Like, like to me, the fact that the judge said, "Hey, that they picked the gate requirements, and that's the gate requirements they picked," and I'm not here again to question those requirements. Well, the question is, were they reasonable or not? Were they, you know, kind of abuse of discretion or whatever? And that's the government does in the case law get the benefit of the doubt. Now, I'm not commenting on any case or no, anything but, like but that. Just case but law, just, right. just generally speaking, and. You know, it isn't a de novo review where you know, you're looking at every little thing and if there's, you know, some, some sort of error, you know, the judge can step into the in a de, novo, de novo review into the, you know, sort of into the, the government seat and sort of look at, you know, what the errors were. That's not the standard in this case. Could the judge, and again, we're just talking generally speaking, could a judge say this requirement is, is unduly restrictive? Yes, you can. You know, and there's been plenty of bid protests where companies have challenged uh, an agency's statement of requirements and whether they unduly restrict competition. They've overstated their minimum needs and that sort of thing. You know, generally in those cases, the agency and the government does get a reasonableness sort of standard and looking at the you know entire record, right, of how the requirements were developed. You know, and a statement of the government explaining why this is necessary to meet our needs, our minimum needs, right? And we're not overstating it to unduly restrict competition that could meet the requirement. So, On the other side of this to me that was really interesting this summer is just the news that popped last week about DOS, the other big cloud procurement from DOD that got awarded to CSRA, the team that they're leading. And that was, we'll call it almost trouble-free procurement. I know uh, Alan Thomas, the GSA Federal Acquisition Service admit, uh, Commissioner, who spoke in late July at an event that I moderated, said we, we got adequate competition. And, you know, he couldn't really talk too much because they were in the middle of source selection. But he, he said we expect the award before the end of summer. And here we are, end of summer, and the award came through. Uh, I, you know, it's interesting the two procurements, the both big dollars. You know, the, the DOS is worth about, you know, $7.8 billion. The, the Jedi is estimated to be worth $10 billion over 10 years. 
uh, they're still very much get into DoD and, and, and grow the business. You know, the DOS is for back office, Microsoft Office 365, email collaboration. That's only going to grow. I mean, yes, you know, you have one seat per person, but the storage, the needs, the capabilities are all going to grow. And, and this one went off without a hitch while the Jedi didn't. I just find that very interesting. And, and I'm not sure if there's we can comment on it because there are very, very different requirements. But here we are. Uh, we'll have to wait and see if a protest happens. And, and I'm yes, a bet, you'll I'm have a betting, to. I'm a betting man, and I think it will. I know you're you're, you're not a betting man. No, I am not a betting man. <laughs> and so many factors go into just generally procurement and how it goes off, and you know, and also, well, a lot of it is too is how the agency actually positions the procurement for, and how how industry responds to how it's been characterized or presented. Um, to the public, and that can make a big difference there too. And then also the requirements again, like for you know how the government articulates those. And in the and in different procurements, there's less uh, there can be less angst, I guess, so to speak. You know, depending on how they're how been they've been articulated, and is there a common basis to compete or whatever? And in fact, someone made the exact point to me a couple months ago regarding Jedi and Dios. And they said basically, interestingly enough, if the government is clear about what they're trying to buy, if the government is, is you know, communicates with industry and, and there's that back and forth, then the procurements generally go fairly well. And I think that was one of the problems with Jedi that I've heard is that the, what they were trying to do and how they were trying to do it and why they were trying to do it was not necessarily clear to the industry. And that caused that angst you talked to. Yes, or the overarching sort of theme about where Jedi was going and what it means or still may mean to the department and what it means for industry's ability to compete in the future. It might be, you know, a, a different articulation perhaps. I don't know. You know, one of the interesting notes in one of the bid protests is that, the, you know, they talked about there was differences between what DOD was thinking about, I think, versus the way it was fully presented perhaps. I don't know. It's it's just an interesting. I think that communication, what you're really picking up on, is communication is vital to, you know, to the government industry relationship. And the more you can communicate and better explain what your goals are and how you're trying to achieve them, the better industry can compete, the better they can respond, and also the better they can understand when you do make that business decision, why you did it, and where you want to go with it. And what it means to me in the future, whether I'm the winner or or a loser, sounds so simple, Roger. You make it so you make it sound so hey, simple. Communication, yeah, it's, I'm a big believer in communication. It solves a lot of problems. So, anyway, so we're up on the break, um, Jason. So when we come back, we'll continue to talk a little about the sum, the procurement summer that was 2019, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit about. Um, some other GSA items, or you can pick other agencies if you so choose. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's the executive editor of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Jason Miller, he is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. Jason, what else you know was part of this long, hot summer that we just passed that caught your fancy? 
The one story I've been focusing on quite a bit is a, a big change at the Department of Health and Human Services, their program support center, their, what we call the other PSC, not to be confused with the other, co- the other association that you guys uh, uh, are frenemies with, we'll call them. Um, we're friends. We're all friends. We're all friends. <laughs> but uh, the program support office, they offered assisted acquisition services to other agencies, very similar to uh, GSA FedSim, very similar to Interior, very similar to SOUP and NIAC and on all those others. And earlier this year, in June timeframe, PSC decided we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to offer assisted acquisition services. And what they decided to do is not just say, okay, we're going to get out of the business, but they're going to stop now. Now, this happened in June. We know the federal fourth quarter, busiest buying season you know, over the year starts in July. And, and we know that agencies are going to them because they don't have the in-house resources. And what I've heard is no other of the uh, assisted acquisition services, generally speaking, have a ton of capacity to to pick up all that work. And Roger, we're talking about something like 500 contracts over a billion dollars alone just from DOD, and then that doesn't even include all the other agencies. So we're talking about well over a billion dollars worth of, of, of obligations going through PSC every every year, and they've decided just to shut it down. Now, I, I understand the decision that they can make is fine, but I think what's the rub here with that decision is how they went about it. And the reasons behind the decision, they, they talked about, for instance, well, we didn't have the proper policies and procedures in place to deal with classified work, something called, you know, the, the SF-254, whatever that is, right? Or the DD, I'm sorry, the DD-254. DD the DD-254, my, my apologies with my SF versus my DD. But the point here is what I've been told from multiple sources is they don't do classified work. They don't need to do the DD-254, Second thing is they dismiss the executive leadership, the CFO, the executive director, the head of contracting activity. They, they walk them out and put them on paid administrative leave for a, quote, unquote, $40 million problem in the budget, the, the supply fund that they use. When, in fact, I've been told, again, that uh, OMB corrected that $40 million mistake and said that it's not a mistake. It's just an accounting uh, approach that happens within in government and, and all is well. And so they, according to my sources, drummed up this idea of this DD-254 problem. So they're not sure why they're shutting it down. But again, we'll go back to it's their decision. They can do it whatever they want. But then it comes to, okay, how are they shutting it down? Why would you shut it down as the fourth quarter begins? Why would you then also make a decision that they don't have the legal authority to transfer contracts back to the home agency? All these questions arose about how they went about it, and I think that's really the rub here. If they would have said starting October 1st, we're not going to do it anymore, and then starting October 1st, all contracts should be transferred away from us, but we will support you to the end of life of the contract, that would be much more supportive. And I'll tell you, here's the problem I see, Roger. If Agency X went through PSC because they needed help and awarded a contract in February, that contract now will end in February. So no options will be picked up. If you're an agency who just went through this process, you did that for a reason, not because you love PSC, not because you thought HHS and their assisted acquisition services were the best thing since sliced bread. You went there because you needed help because you didn't have the internal people, if you will, to do that. And I, I think that was a huge story this year. And really what I've been told is really made a lot of other agencies who are maybe considering something similar to step back and ask themselves, do they really want to get out of the assisted acquisition service business? Or if they do, how would be a better way to do it? I don't know what, what direction this PSC issue will go in, but it's, it's, again, another fascinating story because it becomes one of those head scratchers where you're going, 
why would you make a decision that is, impacts so many agencies' mission? Why would you just make a more pragmatic decision that says we're getting out and we'll, we'll support you to the end? Um, I know there's yeah, no answer. There's no answer to that. I, I guess you know one of the one of the things that you know just thinking back at my career and just even now is you know th- there's an agency that's designed and you know in, in its statutory intent is to support other agencies, right? And that's GSA. And GSA has assisted services capability. In fact, you know, FedSim is, you know, one of the crown jewels of, of procurement in terms of its process and its support for customer agencies on very, very big projects. You know, is are more investments needed just generally in the acquisition workforce to create those centers where that support can be provided? You know, the government really needs to – there's a couple of things going. They need to figure out how to leverage requirements, and they do need to figure out how to take advantage of technology to make buying easier. I mean, some of that's we're going to talk about moving forward. But leveraging and investments in the acquisition of workforce generally is something that continues to need to be done. And that's sort of what this reflects to me, just generally in terms of the capacity isn't there and – People try to help out with regard to that capacity and what happens when things don't work out, you know, as intended. I mean, it's, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We've been talking about this capacity issue, however, for, I don't know, Roger, since the 1990s. You were, I think, in maybe you correct me if I'm wrong, you were probably at GSA when the decision was made by the, admin, by the then Clinton administration to cut the acquisition workforce. And I never kind of understood that decision. Like I understood the peace dividend, you need less people, but there are plenty of other places to cut and we don't need to go back and relook at that history. But I think you're absolutely right that we've been looking at talking about the acquisition workforce for a long time and not enough is happening to fix it. And I think that's at the heart of the problem. And maybe having a new OFPP administrator, another story of the year, of the summer, will, again, put some renewed focus on that. Uh, Right. And when I do refer to baby out with the bathwater, I'm really talking about making sure investments are made in the acquisition workforce generally. And, you know, and and where strategically you can make investments in organizations that can provide additional support beyond, you know, their organic agency operations you know, that's, that's still a very viable model in my mind. So. So the PSC thing uh, is interesting. We'll see where it takes us again. Uh, there's some other agencies I've been told that may be heading down that path, so it's something to look out for. Uh, I'll bring up one other kind of summer uh, issue that, that came up, which I thought was also fascinating, over at the Homeland Security Department. Okay, well, first, just real quick, when we're talking acquisition workforce, that's a mouthful. One of the things that's, that was announced this year, um, this spring, and also there's been additional announcements, and the registration actually opens tomorrow, is FAST 2020. And that is like GSA's national training conference. It's a great opportunity for in-person training for could be thousands of government employees and industry folks attending. Um, it's a huge you know, training multiplier um, and a wise investment, I think, in, in that support for the acquisition workforce. And it's something that hadn't been around for several years. I think yes. In the post-controversy conference issues, yes, the, they canceled yeah, it. Yeah, the Las Vegas experience. I can mention it. It's, you can it's mention past, it. It's, it's, it's past history, right? Exactly. Things like that had a cascading effect across government where people couldn't meet anymore. Events were canceled. 
Um, you know, DOD's acquisition conference was a victim of that as well, or a casualty. All kinds of things happened back at that during that period. I think the acquisition conference at GSA's holding is a good idea. It's fine. I think getting people together, you, you see very few places that do that. You guys do it with your two conferences a year, and NCMA does it. But there's not a whole lot of others who do acquisition training like in that sense. But with the change of technology since the early 2000s, since the early 2010s even, with online learning, distance learning, the, the use of you know kind of Skype and other kind of similar – do we need those in-person trainings like we used to in a different way? I mean, I'm not saying we don't need them, but can't we figure out also to get people trained kind of the just-in-time training as well? I mean, you have a point, but I, I'm kind of old school. I really believe in you know face-to-face interaction with the person, talking to them about the issues, brainstorming. You know, developing a relationship, and I mean a professional relationship, that is critical to growth. That's critical to learning. That's how I don't care how much technology you have, unless you're going to turn everything over to AI. People are you know, are in, need to be engaged. They need to. That's how you learn. That's how you develop professionally. Even just how you learn to communicate directly with people is a vital aspect of it. You know, beyond you know, the book learning, it's those kind of skills and how you engage and understand people. And, you know, and there's a whole art to that as well and making sure you're you're an effective communicator. That's a great point. I think one of the reasons why GSA is holding the conference again, because they, they also get that. I mean, Emily Murphy, the GSA administrator, has an acquisition background. She understands the importance of, of having that those relationships. So a fair point. Uh, I'm just saying that, like, let's let's not also overlook the importance of, of getting people the just-in-time training. Yeah, well, I agree with that, too. Because yeah. that, can, that can also keep people from tripping over the potholes that happen right. in, in procurements. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our discussion since we sort of – you want to talk – little uh, DHS, maybe? DHS, and then we'll talk some more GSA. Uh, my guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of Federal News Network, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and my guest today is Jason Miller. He is the executive editor of the Federal News Network, and Jason, I know you wanted uh, you're chomping at the bit, I guess, to talk about DHS and some of its procurement decisions. So, what happened this summer? <laughs> There's two things that stood out to me around DHS, and you know, we got to give Soraya Korea, the chief procurement officer at DHS, a lot of credit. She is someone who we know takes some risks, but also is very pragmatic about what decisions she makes. So, we have two separate decisions. One's more recent than the other, but earlier this summer, we. She made the decision to move the Eagle contract, a big IT services contract. It was up for version three on top of the GSA schedule, an, another BPA on top of a schedule. We won't go down there yet, Roger. I know you, you want to talk about it. No, no, you but, want to but talk I give, about it. But I give her credit for not going through this long, arduous process of awarding contracts, of, of doing the, the, the one-off when you really you could find everything you need under the schedule. So then she also made a decision just recently in August – where the first source three contract, again, this is for mainly commodity IT products, is actually going to stay in-house and they will have an acquisition strategy and an RFP, everything coming out you know, by January 2020. 
that is a little questionable in my view, though I think that, again, why do you need your own contract when you're buying commodity IT? And that's the key here. You're not buying Homeland Security IT, but you're buying commodity IT. You have contracts that already exist, like NASA Soup, like CIOCS, that do provide you with those access. And then you also can buy commodities off the GSA schedule. Now, I know she will have a good rationale, and I, I don't question her rationale. What I just do question is why, why do agencies, and whether let's put DHS to a side, why do they continue to see the need for their own contract when they're buying, again, I'll go back to commodities, commercial products and services. That, that still is a, a – I just don't see the value there. Uh, I'm sure she has one. I give her all the credit. But, again, uh, maybe it's something that I'll have to do a story on and ask her why. Right. Well, that would be um... – Interesting to hear what the rationale is. Um, you know, we're a big believer. I'm a big believer in using pre-existing contract vehicles to meet uh, agency needs. You know, and there's a host of them out there now, right? There's GSA schedules. There's NASA Soup. There's all the GSA GWACs, Alliant. There's NIH's contracts, and then there's contracts that are, go department wide that support things as well. There's plenty of platforms to get to your point commodities off of. And, you know, oftentimes there's still some, well, we need something unique or there's might be issues about perhaps, and I'm, you know, whether it's, you know, obtaining small business credit or, you know, and how that's managed or just even, but you can do all those things on those pre-existing vehicles as well. So I'm kind of undercutting what I, I'm trying, I'm struggling, I guess. I, I, it would be interesting to see if someone like a Dell Tech or a BGov or even like Brian Frill, who I talked to for this story over at, uh, BD squared would do some analysis of all the of the top fifty products, the top one hundred products bought a first source, and compare it to can you find them on other existing vehicles, soup or CIOCS or schedules? And if you told me you know thirty percent can't be found on any other of those contracts, I would say okay, that makes sense. But if you tell me the opposite, ninety five percent can be found everywhere else, then I would say GSA or, or NASA Soup would be happy to add that other five percent. So you make sure you have access to it. That's a great point. But again, ultimately, you you need to ask Soraya. There you go. The rationale. I can't go any further than we'll that. Have, we'll, 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 we can speculate all we want, but right, without. I think I think we'll have some time to talk through it. I think uh, as they do some what they call industry engagements, we'll we'll get a better sense. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Later this summer. Yep. So so I think those are the two big things. And then you know, Roger, we got to talk GSA. It was, yeah, of it was course a, we it was, do. It was a busy, busy summer for our friends at GSA. And, and I think we got to start with, with the most important story of the summer, Roger. Yes, what is that? GSA turned 70 years old. Oh, happy birthday, GSA. July 1st, 1949, they were the, the – I, I saw a copy of the original letter signed by President Truman to, to wow. kick off GSA. It was very fascinating. I'm doing actually a series of uh, interviews with the GSA folks to, to celebrate that anniversary. We started with Emily Murphy. And I talked to uh, Lenny Lowentritt and Mary Davy. Lenny Lowentritt is my boss for years. There you go. Uh, Lenny's been there since 1972 or something. Yes. Um, And then uh, we're talking – we have something coming out later in September with Alan Thomas. And um, we're also talking with Tom Howder who's been there something like since the late 80s. So – and then we're going to talk to the public building service as well later for another – edition of GSA at 70 in October, November timeframe. So, you know, I think this is an important anniversary for many reasons. And the biggest reason to me, and I've written about this before, is that there are, again, about three or four agencies in government that really make government run. And no one really understands that. None that no administration does. Uh, I don't think Congress does. 
But if if OMB, GSA, and OPM are not treated with the respect and the resources that they deserve, everything else in government kind of starts to fall apart. And, and we see some of that. I mean, I know this is a different discussion, but the OPM-GSA merger, there's a lot of concern that what will happen to OPM should they get cut up into pieces and piece moved here and a piece moved there, that impact will have broader effect on the government and the way they work, the way it meets its mission. I know it's a, it's a bit of a trite saying these days, almost like cyber is a team sport. But generally speaking, those three agencies make the government run, and most people don't know that. So I think highlighting GSA's 70th anniversary is, is part of my goal uh, you know, to, to, to really bring people around and be like, oh, that's what they do. That's why they're so important. So are you going to interview me? I was there 20 years, 20 of the 70. <laughs> which, which 20, 1950? To- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but to your point, uh, procurement touches everything the government does, right? You, you know, every office is outfitted with products from the commercial marketplace, uh, all IT operations, professional services experts, um, you name it, the government buys it and it has to be done through a procurement process. And there's tenets of that process about full and open competition, et cetera. And it's an underappreciated role that GSA plays and actually a vital role that it plays. It, it touches everything that the government does. Now let's criticize them. Oh, sure. Oh, Why, right. not? <laughs> Why, Why not? Why not? It's an easy mark. I think there are several things that happened this summer that you know made it for a fascinating summer from a GSA perspective. We had the uh, I think was was it the draft RFP yeah for the draft the marketplace yes the draft C commercial platform initiative draft RFP they we call- had more details about the consolidated schedule in fact an announcement just came out just recently that, that that on October one they'll release what that new consolidated schedule will look like the terms and conditions and everything else yeah they had a couple RFIs with you know terms and conditions and what and sin structure and that sort of thing yep. And then we had uh, information about uh, update on on Fed biz ops and, and the fact it's going to be ended. My 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 cake will be hopefully one big uh, bad website cake that says okay. uh, the end of the worst website in government. Uh, that's happening too in sometime in November timeframe. You said that, not me. I, I will okay. take full responsibility okay. for that. And, and then we also saw some other things happen at GSA, like um, uh, the most recent IG report that came out around TDR, transactional data reporting. That was yes. fascinating. And a, an IG report around NASA Soup and questioning why GSA is using NASA Soup. So there's a ton there. Yeah. Um, lots of stuff to unpack. The draft solicitation or draft RFP for the commercial platform, the Section 846, you know, it's still – you know, in a certain sense, doubles down on the idea they're only going to test the e-marketplace model for those listeners and those who follow it. GSA identified three different models, e-procurement, e-marketplace, and uh, e-commerce. E-marketplace, think, you know, the marketplace that's out there, Amazon. E-commerce, you think companies that have their own sites and sell their own stuff. Um, and then e-procurement is like software that, sets business rules and helps you like Travago, so to speak, right? So those three models fall within the statute, but the decision, the current decision in, in the RFP draft reflected, you know, it's limiting it to the marketplace, which, you know, is of significant concern across industry, especially all those folks who are e-commerce or e-procurement platforms who would like to be able to participate. And this is going to be a, it's a pilot, it's really a program, it's a five-year contract, 
and GSA in the draft talked about an addressable market of $6 billion annually. So you're talking an addressable $30 billion market over five years. That's a pilot, and it's only limited to one of the models. Is it, that under, is a, is it under an OTA? Because that sounds like one of those OTA no, things. No, no, no. It's not, no, no, no. <laughs> they, haven't, they haven't tried that yet. They don't have the authority for that, actually. So I know. Yeah. I think, I think the, the point you bring up is very interesting, and, and GSA has defended their position of only – testing one first with the idea of we will do others. Now, what I think, again, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation, Roger, when we talked Jedi. Explain your plan so people are, are can understand what your strategy is, and then they don't question it. And I think that while GSA has been very communicative about the e-marketplace, they've gone out and talked about it, they've been on panels, they've done shows like mine and yeah, yours. They've been, yeah, they've been, to their credit, they've gone out and talked but, a but, lot. But the long-term vision is what's missing. Meaning, hey, we're going to do this pilot, but then we're going to release another RFP six months later and another RFP six months after that. Yeah, there's nothing like that. We don't that. know that. Right. And now I, they may have that plan, but they should communicate well, th- it. Well, th- that's important because the statute and these phases that they've done, they've done an implementation plan phase, a market research phase, and then also you know, the next phase is sort of writing the rules. Well, if you're only doing a pilot currently on one of the – types of platforms, and you've got to write rules within the next year, what is that those rules are going to be written around? And does that, so if you're, I'm an e-commerce or a procurement platform company, is there creating an institutional, foundational, structural bias in favor of one model over everybody else because all they're looking at is one that one marketplace? And on top of it, the time frame of the contract and you know the dot potential dollar volume. You know that base. That's just it's you're you're shutting the market down before you even get started to one type. And I know we got to go on a break. We'll continue our discussion at GSA, uh, our favorite topic anyway. And at seventy, uh, when we come back, I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller. He's executive editor of Federal News Network. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Jason Miller, who is the executive editor of the Federal News Network. We're talking, you know, the summer that was. We're talking GSA right now and 846. You know, more thoughts on that? The biggest thing that, that stood out to me among the effort was uh, you highlighted a couple of interesting points. One one of the three areas that they're trying to test, one of the marketplaces. Uh, there's also a lot of interest from Congress still. Obviously, there's the NDAA. There's some language there. But what stood out to me this summer about 846 that struck me just recently is when the FAR Council put out the interim final rule about banning you know Chinese-made products, telecom, video surveillance com- uh, products, mainly those from Huawei and ZTE, and how they took it down to below the simplified acquisition threshold. They applied it to commercial products. Okay. And then you have 846, which says we want to make commercial products buying easier, all below the micro-purchase threshold. Okay. How, how do those two come together? And, and, and I'm not sure there's an answer to that. And when I talk to like your colleague, Tom Sisti, and I talk to other associations, they had similar concerns about how that all fits together. Yeah. How does it fit together? And you know, what What you can say just looking, you know, that's a great point, Jason. Just looking at the draft solicitation for the commercial platform and looking at eight, uh, 889, 
So it's essentially a model that says buyer beware, that the buyer, each individual, is up, you know, for the below the micro purchase threshold. That's what this is designed for, and that and you know, eight eighty nine below applies below the simplified acquisition threshold. So the buyer beware. Their buyer is the one who's going to have to do the due diligence. So that just raises questions like, what's GSA's role? What is the value add? Quite frankly, that they're providing in this case, or even what is the value add of the marketplace provider? with regard to screening that type of government requirement, is that something that the government, you know, what's fundamental to the government is not purely all about ease of use and, uh, and the capability to get things quickly. Those things are extremely important. Don't get me wrong. But there are, there are always going to be some government unique requirements because these are like, this is a national security issue here, right? That's fundamentally what it is. And it's not, and there's this model isn't going to address that at that order level. Um, and interestingly, you look at the parallel universes, so they have the GSA schedules over there where compliance is a requirement. And this will uh, you know, apply at the contract level as well as order levels as, you know, as well. Um, and it's going to be incorporated into all those contracts here because it's under the, you know, the commercial platform model. Those things are going to have to be incorporated by the buyer on each individual you know, order. It's just it doesn't doesn't compute to me. The the complexity is what needs to be addressed, I think, next by GSA, but also by OFPP because they were the ones that made the decision on eight eighty nine the Huawei ZTE to to have it be- go below you know the simplified acquisition threshold as well as apply to commercial products. So I think that it would do them well to kind of get out and talk a little bit about how everything fits together. Because we also have the consolidated schedules coming, yes. and that adds another layer of complexity to this as well. And and while I think people are supportive, I haven't heard any vendors complain about having a consolidated schedule. There's also a, how does 889, 846 apply to right. consolidated well, schedule? Well, those things will be addressed, and consolidated should make it easier for contractors to deal with the government. That's the goal, and, I, and, and we're supportive of that, uh, at least when I talk to companies who are our members. Um, but the you know in terms of you know the commercial platform those government unique requirements you're talking about and the complexity of it just go down a list like you know in normal government contracts given the value of the program a thirty billion over five years uh, potentially up to the trade agreements act would apply you know it applies under the GSA schedules which is thirty billion annually you know why doesn't apply that's the con- we questions product suppliers who are on contract are asking, why are you holding me to two different standards? Um, and also, one of the things that is missing from what GSA has done, quite frankly, is the, the statute required a review of commercial terms and conditions or standard terms and conditions of commercial platform providers in the context of government requirements. That's exactly what we're talking about, Jason. That wasn't done. It's not in there in either one of the reports that they've issued so far. It's not addressed in the uh, in the draft RFP, and so that there's a complexity here that's sort of like people uh, people thinking they, it's going to go away. So, so do does GSA believe it has been done and it's not done that, to your satisfaction, Roger? Um, that's a good question. To, you know, and maybe you could ask them. Um, Are you upset re- with Roger Waldron's? Uh, right. Well, you know, we've asked that question ourselves, and we haven't got an answer. You know, there is about a page 
of general summary of commercial practices in uh, maybe it even says terms and conditions in the report, but it doesn't really get into issues that should be addressed about the order process, how it works, what's it mean for a government contractor, I mean, or and the buyer, or even things like pay to play. So, for example, is the ability to pay a marketplace provider for better search results on your website, you know, and my my product pops up first. Well, is that a kickback act, anti-kickback act violation? Is it not? Is it, or even just from a policy perspective, you want the government by making buying decisions on what's the best value to the government, not having it influenced about how much a third party can play another third party for placement, right? I mean, that's, as a taxpayer, that's what I want. So, so, and GSA hasn't really addressed those things. I mean, it's, I mean, I think our, our our observation in that regard is fair. If they have something, I think they should make it public. I think that's the key here. Again, track back to the beginning of our conversation is when the government has trouble. And again, it's not just GSA; it's DOD; it's everyone. Is when they don't communicate, and, and it sounds so easy, but uh, you can sure. communicate without communicating. Yes, I absolutely. think that's right. Right, that's absolutely. part of it. Wow, Jason, we only got about a minute and a half left. Uh, so we'll have to talk about TDR and all those other other stuff the next time we do the get together uh, later this fall. But um, speaking of the fall, what do you see? What are you looking? What are you watching? What's in Jason Miller's crystal ball, or or, or it could be like Johnny Carson, the Karnak, the Karnak. The <laughs> a couple things that come to mind is obviously we're going to watch the NDA, right? Defense authorization bill and the procurement provisions that are in there. There's a lot in there. Is it'd be interesting because there's also a lot that, that tag not just the DoD, but for general government. We know a lot of stuff gets placed in there. The other thing I'll, I'll be looking at is when the new OFPP administrator starts to make his rounds. Will yeah, he be Mike Wooten, when yeah. he gets on Capitol Hill? When yeah. will he testify? Will he start speaking at conferences? I'll be interested to see how he lays out his priorities. I've already have a request in for OMB, hint, hint, for an interview. So hopefully that will happen. Uh, and then finally, the other thing I guess I'll be looking at is I'll go back to uh, what does HHS do with their program support office? What do other agencies do who are considering similar changes? Will they follow through with them or do they get scared off by HHS? There's a lot there to to, to be excited for as we enter uh, fiscal 2020. Yeah. Well, yes, that's the other, that's the other big thing. As always, we're we're at the end of the fiscal year, right, Jason? People have been busy. I've heard people that are busier this summer than they've been in a long time. I think that's with the stability. I mean, after I think part of that's not stability. It's just the reaction, and now people are ramping up and catching up after the shutdown. But there still could be another shutdown. Everyone mis- yep. misidentified the fact that there's a budget deal doesn't mean there's a shutdown. You know, keep the government open deal. It just means we all. Congress and the White House agreed to top line numbers. Right, we could still see a shutdown. I'm not trying to, you know, scare people, but this is fact of life until they pass a CR or whatever. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show. My guest today has been Jason Miller. He's executive editor of the Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Radio, a part of the Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.
To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.